Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Good morning, Calvary Chapel. Good morning. Well, hey, if you're a guest with us, we want to welcome you. We're so glad that you came this morning to worship with us, and uh, we also want to welcome those who are watching us online on our online service through the streaming camera, and maybe somebody who's uh, checking in on a podcast later. We want to welcome them as well. But uh, man, I'm so excited. We are in the fourth week of a series called Arise, and it's the study of the book of Joshua. And has any of this been helpful for anybody? Because I'll tell you what, God has really been just speaking to me. Uh, incredibly through uh, the book of Joshua. He's just really just been honing in some things in my life, just personally, um, you know, and, and kind of reprioritizing it. it it's kind of the mode, you know, the first of the year for us to kind of be in that mode. We're kind of like trying to set our course and make sure that we're on, on task. And so it, it's just God's timing, I think, that we would, that he would have us be in the book of Joshua right now. And uh, we are normally going through the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and we will get back to that as soon as we're finished with this. But I thought four or five weeks, who knows? It could be eight, nine. I'm, I'm not going to commit to anything because every week I'm like, I'm going to do two chapters, and then I don't. So whatever. It's all right. That's what happens because pastors, you know, start to, they're just like to talk a lot, and that's the problem. So anyway, well, I hope it's been helpful thus far you know, hopefully it's giving you some clarity as it relates to the, uh, the vision that the God has given to us for 2017, which is to take back our city. It comes from Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, where the Lord gave Joshua the same promise he gave Moses, that every place that the sole of his foot should tread upon, the Lord has given him, just as he promised to Moses. And so the Lord has given us that promise as well, and, and we want to go into this community and just really shine for Jesus. We want to bring the gospel to those who have been, you know, who are just stranded in sin that need to find freedom and liberty, and they can find that through Jesus Christ, and we have the answer for them. And so 2017 is that year that God is calling Calvary Chapel to get external, and we are praying through what that means for us, you know, later this year in terms of outreaches and whatnot. But we would ask you to continue to pray for our ministry. We would ask you to pray for the, uh, for the leadership of the ministry as we're praying through what it is that God exactly is going to have us do. You know, that's the great thing about the book of Joshua is it's really kind of a book of just waiting on God. And when you, when you get, out, get out, outside ahead of God, you see, you'll see what happens. It would work. But we want to be right in sync with the Spirit. So we want to just, uh, just be praying about that as the Lord would speak to us. Today we are in a part two uh, sermon series from the, uh, from the book of Joshua. We looked at uh, chapter six last week. And we will look at chapter 7 this week. And it's called, I've entitled the message, The Battle Cry and the Cry of Battle. As we did last week, we went through the, the battle cry. You guys remember that? You guys had a big battle cry. You want to do that again? Just so we can make the kids jealous in there. You guys ready? Give me your biggest battle cry. Like you're getting ready to rush in on the enemy and you're taking your sword out. You know how the movies go. One, two, three. Yeah! So there you have it. That is the battle cry. But... As you know, with every battle also comes a cry of battle. It's a different kind of cry. It's, it's the mourning part of battle where maybe someone you, you loved had passed away through the battle or whatever. There is that aspect of it as well. That's what we're going to look at in Joshua chapter 7 this morning. Now, just to kind of bring you up to speed, the children of Israel brought into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua who God had appointed 
after uh, Moses had died. And now uh, they have gone through some various different things in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. And God brought them into their very first battle in chapter 6 against the city of Jericho. And you guys know the story. We went through it last week. You won't want to pick up the sermon. You can listen to it online on our website from last week. But as you know, it was not the typical battle strategy, right? God just said, hey, I want you to take some trumpets, the Ark of the Covenant, some priests, some soldiers, and I want you to march around the walls of Jericho for six days, just one, once, once a day, and go home. Doesn't seem like a lot of work for a soldier, but that's what they did. On the seventh day, God said, I want you to go and mark, march around the walls of Jericho seven times, and at the very end of that seven times, as the trumpets are blowing, as the priests are blowing the horns, then everybody with a great shout, as we just did, you know, then the walls of Jericho will fall down. And that's exactly what happened. Can you believe it? God did what he said. Shouldn't amaze us, but oftentimes it doesn't. And really, I think sometimes we may even approach this account as like as if it's, you know, fictional, as it didn't really happen, as if it wasn't real. This is an account that happened. God did it like that. And so don't be surprised when God does something different in your life, when he calls you to do something different, when he calls you to do something abnormal, because he will. It's what he does. So anyhow, we end chapter 6 just kind of on this big mountaintop experience. And you've all been there spiritually. You've had success. You're rah, rah, rah. We're so awesome. Look at us. God is doing such great things. And you know that when you're in that place, the devil is right there lurking and he's waiting And he is waiting for the right temptation to slip in front of you. And oftentimes it's pride. Oftentimes it's pride. And we know that the spiritual mountaintops, that there is the downside of the mountain and there's a valley below. And so we always have to be on guard. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter. If you would stand with me, we're going to read the first five verses of Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, if you would get there, please. Here's the word of the Lord. But the, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of, of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shibarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is alive and active and it is about to work in our life. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to just be open to what it is that your word would say to us personally this morning. Your spirit is present. Lord, your son is being revealed. You are being glorified, and we pray, Father, that now you would shape us and make us like Jesus. Lord, it's, that is our desire. We want to bring you all the honor and glory in our lives, Lord. And so let us have ears to hear and hearts to obey your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
as we enter into chapter 7, after this great victory in Jericho, you see the first word there, but, but it's a contrasting word. It's a word that the writer is, is going to now contrast what he's just got done saying. Like sometimes that word works out really well for us, doesn't it? Like when he says, you know, you're sinners and, and you know, you're, you're really apart from God, but God, you know, sent his son or something like that. The but in that aspect is a positive note for us. Not the case in Joshua chapter 7. The but takes a downward turn. We, we notice here that there's an infraction against God. Israel has what it says here, broke faith. They were unfaithful with the rules of engagement God had given them. Um, he told them not to take anything from Jericho. He said, those things are to be devoted to me. Those are mine. It was the first battle, so it makes sense that the first fruits of that battle would go to the Lord. You don't take anything. You destroy everything, but all the silver and the gold and the, and the valuable items like that, you bring to the storehouse of the Lord, to the treasury of the Lord, and that goes to me. You don't take a thing. You don't leave any living thing alive. You, you kill all animals, all people, all that kind of stuff. This is the judgment of God. When God goes into this land, He is cleaning house. It's not that God is, is murdering. That's not murder. It's judgment. It's a reality of people that won't listen to Him. And that's a reality for all of us. One day, there is judgment that we will face if we don't accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and place our faith in Him. And so as He goes into Jericho, He's cleaning house. He's cleaning the land. He's bringing in His people that He might be able to sanctify the land for His purposes. And yet these guys, the children of Israel, were not to take anything from it. But there was a guy named Achan. Achan was, didn't seem like he needed much. We'll see later that he had plenty of things. And yet he disobeyed what the Lord said. He took some of the devoted things. Now, Achan's sin went unnoticed by everyone else, except for the one that really matters, God. He saw everything. He saw when, when Achan stood before that silver and that gold and that, that super fly Babylonian garment that he wanted to grab and give to his wife, or maybe he wanted to dress up in, his own, in it for himself, we're not sure. But the reality is, God saw he was busted. He was caught red-handed. Now, I was never a good thief either growing up. I was, never had the knack, you know, for the five-finger discounts like some people I, I knew. I did get away with a few things, not to brag, but, but here's the deal. I, I, remember the first, I remember the first time I got caught shoplifting. I was 13 years old. I was going into a a store to buy some Christmas gifts, and I saw something that I wanted to buy my aunt, and I thought, oh, well, I would like to get that. Because I'm other-centered, you know, my thought process was, well, if I take this, then I'll have more money to be able to buy other gifts for more people. You see how that works, right? And so my thought process, you know, is flawed. I understand that. Forgive me for that. But uh, we decide, I decided to take this, this little stuffed animal. And so as smart as I am, I'm wearing this, uh, you know, hoodie, and I stuffed it in my front pouch there. It's ridiculous. I have this gigantic thing, you know, pouched out here, and I'm walking around like, 
and I hung out in the store. Hello? <laughs> Don't shoplift, but do not take lessons from me for sure, but you will end up in jail. But anyways, uh, the reality is, is that uh, then that moment came as I stood there and the, the clerk came up to me and she said, sir, uh, can I see what you have in your pocket? Oh, yeah, this, do you have a receipt for that? Oh, oh no, I was going to buy that. You didn't, oh, come on, you didn't think I was going to steal this, did you? Uh, yeah, sir, come with me, would you please? And she takes me in the back room and calls the police, and you know the deal. So, you know, I was busted. That was one of the most insanely stupid things I've ever done in my life. Now, let me ask you, how much more insanely stupid is it to steal from God? How much more insanely stupid is it to take the things that God said don't take to take from Him? He sees everything. I had a chance at least. Achan had no chance. He had no chance. There were no cameras around. He thought he could get away with it. And yet there was the eye in the sky watching. And he saw him. And no doubt... God was thinking, what are you doing, Achan? Why are you doing that? You don't need that. It was the temptation. Nothing goes unnoticed by the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3 says, or verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees everything, folks. You might think that you're getting away with something today. You're not. Don't mistake God's patience, as my pastor used to always say, for God's approval. Don't think that because you're getting away with something today, that God's okay with it, because He's not. God hates sin. He hates it. He despises it. And although God is incredibly patient, He will at some point address you in your issue. How could this happen to Achan? I mean, the, the, the instructions were explicit, Joshua 6, 18 and 19. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and, the, and of iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. That sounds crystal clear to me. Sounds like there's no way to deviate through what God was trying to say there. And yet, for some reason, there are those that think that they can get away with it and violate God's word, even when it's clear. Achan gives us a little bit of information as it relates to what he was thinking when he did this. Check out verse 21. He said this, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. You see the transgression here, the, 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 the way that that worked? The order, notice he saw, he coveted, and then he took, and that's the way it happens, folks. You see, you covet, and then you fall. It's exactly the way that happens. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Eve saw the tree, she coveted the fruit, and then she took it, and she ate of it. It all begins with the eye. 
It all begins with the eye. Jesus said that himself in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. He said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. It's the health of our eye that will determine the outcome of our actions. Achan had a bad eye. What does that mean? He had a bad heart. His heart wasn't right. The eye is a reference to the heart. We know the Word tells us that out of the heart spring forth the issues of life. It's the heart that God looks at. It is the eye of your life. It tells a story. And it sees. And it, and it longs for certain things if your heart's not right. And so it's important that we keep our hearts vertical. That we keep our eyes on the Lord. That we keep our direction moving. His direction, not away from Him. Achan defiled himself by taking the devoted things. And not just that, but the curse was also for the entire nation of Israel. There are things that people do that affect in nations. You think of the presidency, the, the, the people that are in power in our, in our world today. Those people making decisions affect us all, don't they? That's why it's so important to pray for them. That's why it's so important to be on your knees asking God, help us, Lord, as a nation. Lead uh, you know, our president. Give him the wisdom, the spirit. Help him to make good decisions. It's why we pray for our government leaders. Because there are things that they can do that affect us all. Achan not only brought judgment upon himself, but also upon all of Israel. And it said, thus God's anger burned against Israel. And judgment came down on them. 36 people lost their lives. And then came the cry of battle. The mourning. Lord, why? What's going on? Why are you doing this? Here's the principle. It's worth writing down. It's not profound, but maybe we need to be reminded. The principle is this. Don't steal from God. Don't steal from God. You might think, like, how could I be stealing from God? Am I stealing from God today? I don't know. Are you? What do you do with your time? What do you do with your talents? What do you do with the things that He's entrusted you with? Are you robbing him? You know, the most common thing that people rob God of is the offerings, is the things that he asks us to give. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, you probably know the verse, but it says this, will man rob God? Yet are you robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you have cursed with a curse. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the, the, open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord God of hosts. Now, this is one of those subjects that pastors hate to talk about and parishioners hate to hear. It's one of those subjects. And yet, 
we are faithful to the Word of God when we come across passages that teach certain things, we teach them. Giving is not, it's not an option. It's, not, it's mandatory. It's a command from the Lord. He tells us that if we aren't giving, that we are robbing the Lord. When God said in Malachi chapter 3 here, don't, uh, to, to bring the full tithe, He means bring 10%. That's what the word means, 10%, tithe. Is that what we should give? No, not at all. Feel free to give 20 or 30 or 40%. I mean, we're not under the law any longer. You can give all you want if you like. Give freely. Listen, the reality is that the idea of giving doesn't change in the New Testament. It doesn't change at all. In fact, Paul instructs the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, he's saying, hey, be disciplined in your giving. It should be regular in your life. You should be, that should be a discipline in your life. You're saying, hey, here's God's, here's mine. You know, and, the, and that's what I love about the Dave Ramsey course is, again, God is the top line. Give to God first. Because everything else that He's given you is, is yours to steward and, and do as he, as he would have you to do with it. But, but the first fruits belong to Him, right? And that's what this course teaches. But Paul is instructing these people so that they don't have to teach tithing every other week. Like, hey, we need to teach about tithing, you know, or whatever. No, we don't. We instruct the people, and then we expect them to be faithful with the instruction of the Word, right? Another verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 through 8. You know the verse. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. Again, must give. That's emphatic. That's not an option. He's not saying, well, you could if you want to. No, you must give. It's a requirement. Now, the devil's done an incredible job, I think, of using many false teachers and charlatans to fleece and coerce and squeeze money out of God's people with all kinds of different tactics and and different false promises that they give, uh, you know, uh, attaching various different things to different gifts and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, and the reality is that the church has been duped by that. I remember when I first got saved, one of the things that I came into the church, not growing up in the church at all, not knowing anything about the church. And there's, there's this premise in my mind, all they want is my money. And I'm thinking, where did that even come from, you know? That's the, the enemy, God does not want your money. He wants your heart, and then your money will follow. You understand that? When God grabs a hold of your life, and you recognize who He is and what He's done for you, and you have that understanding, everything else falls in line. And it's done in such a way that it's not a have to, it's a get to. Like I had that mentality when I first got into the, got into the church uh, uh, before I was saved, going to church, you know. Then I got saved. And all of a sudden, I realized, like, whoa, the Bible says stuff about giving to God. So I didn't want to start giving to God. And I started to do all this research on my own. I didn't hear a sermon or anything. 
But I wanted to obey the word of God. I wanted to be, God had done so much for me, man. He forgave my sins. No longer was I fearful about where I was headed eternally, but I knew that I was confident in Christ that I had eternal life. He had done everything for me. And so I, I decided to start, you know, start tithing. My wife and I couldn't afford it. It wasn't in our budget. You know, we were maxed to the, to the limit on the, what we were, how we were living. And yet we knew it was important. Not even fully understanding that there's a blessing that comes with it, right? So we began to give to the Lord. Even though it wasn't in our budget, we started to make sacrifices to be able to do that. And can I just tell you that God blessed our socks off? Like he blessed our socks off. That's not why we did it. We did it because we wanted to be obedient to the Lord. And yet, when you're obedient to the Lord, there is a blessing that is incomparable, incomprehensible. It's just incredible the way that the Lord does that. It's the obedience to Him. Listen, God could materialize dollar bills if He wanted to. The real issue comes down to, when it comes down to giving is, it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. God, does God really have your heart? He doesn't need your pocketbook. You understand that? God is needless. But He does want your obedience. He does want your obedience. The church has been so duped that I'm going to give you some statistics. That Did you know it's estimated that 25, you know, 10 to 25% of any given churchgoer gives at all so 25% of people that come into church give, right? 5% of those people, 5% of that 10 to 25% give 10% or more. Now, the reality is the people coming in, the, 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 the 2016 number, I don't know where they come up with these numbers, but uh, the, through polling or whatnot, but the, the 2016 numbers per capita of giving is 2.5%, okay? Do you know what the the giving rate in the Great Depression was? 3.3%. So what's being said here is that the people in the Great Depression were outgiving people living in 2016. Is that crazy? Is that crazy? The devil has done an incredible job of stripping the church of this incredible thing that God, that God gets honor and glory through, number one, and that we are blessed through. He's done an incredible job of that. I was reading an article um, about this, and, and the, 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 uh, the article said that if, if, if all churchgoers gave 10% of their earnings to the church, uh, they could receive, they, they could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases, also eliminate illiteracy, solve the world's water and sanitation issues, fund all overseas mission work, all within five years. Oh, and by the way, there still would be 100 to $110 million left over for missions or for ministry expansions and stuff. Is that incredible? I mean, when, when God's people begin to, to pour into God's work and God can impact the world. Now, we understand because we, we understand the vertical relationship with the Lord that the humanitarian efforts that go on, that's not what it's about. It's about getting the gospel to people. Because those humanitarian efforts, yes, we want, to be, we want to be humane with people, but the reality is that I can give you clean water, 
and you're still going to die. And if you don't have Jesus, you're going to hell. But if I give you clean water with the gospel, then you can have both. And that's kind of what we like to do when we support missions. We look at what the effort is. What are they doing? Are they, are they gospel-driven? If they're not gospel-driven, that's probably not something we're going to support. It needs to come with the gospel because the gospel changes lives. Now, it's no wonder that the Mormon religion can uh, build you know, buildings debt-free across the world, that they can um, you know, do such incredible humanitarian um, efforts because, you know, their people are required to give 10%. Like they do an audit at the end of the year, like, hey, can I see your tax returns? And, uh, you know, you're in church discipline if you don't give. That's not what God intended for us. God doesn't, God's not going to, you know, have us do something like that. But here's the reality, is that you have the opportunity to be blessed through giving. You have the opportunity, first and foremost, to understand what it means to give. What does it mean? It's, it's an act of worship to God. It is your act of worship where you're taking what God has given you and you're saying, Lord, I worship at your feet. Here is a portion of what you've given me. And let me tell you, many in the church will never really fully worship God in that way. Just like many in the church will never fully worship the Lord by raising their hands. Some of you might think, like, I don't get that. That seems weird. Why do people raise their hands? Well, I understand I was there once. But what, when I stopped worrying about what everybody else was thinking about around me, and I started to stop worrying about the insecurities of me, I'm not saying that if you don't do that, you're insecure and all that, but what I'm saying is for me, it was for me. I'll be honest. And the Lord was just saying, hey, can you just worship me freely? Yeah, Lord, I can worship freely. Lift your hands to me. Lift your hands to me. So I remember the first time I did it, man, it felt... Like, I just felt like I was free to worship the Lord however. And there was such an incredible blessing that came as a result, being obedient to His Spirit, you know? Now, here's the thing. I don't do it now because I get blessed by it, because there's no feeling attached to it. Now, it's my act of worship to Him. It's like, Lord, I'm worshiping You. I'm giving You glory. I raise my hands to You. The same is... That's the same with giving. When you give to the Lord in that way, and it becomes an act of worship for you, there's, there's an incredible blessing that comes as a result. But that's not why you do it. And that's what the enemy has used in incredible ways to push on people is this idea, oh, if you give, you're going to get, you know, just give God a hundred bucks, he's going to give you a thousand back, you know. And so people are, become irresponsible with their finances and they start to put money that they don't have. They're putting their mortgage money into tithing, thinking God's going to materialize it into uh, you know, thousands and two thousands and whatever. Not that he doesn't do that. But if that's the mode of worship, if that's what you're doing, the reality is then God sees the heart and you know what? He knows why you're doing it. And so it's not for him then, is it? It's for you. That's all false teaching when it comes to to when it comes to, to giving to the Lord. You know, the reality is we give because we want to worship Him. There also is a stewardship issue. There's a lordship issue, I should say. Is God really Lord of your life? If God is really Lord of your life, then everything surrounds around Him and not you. So in other words, your time, your talents, your finances, all of that he is the center of everything. 
It's like, Lord, I want you to be the center of my life. Everything that I am. Is he your Lord? Does he have everything? And if he does, then can he not have some of what he's given you to steward? People don't get the concept. But it's all his. And so when I look at my finances, I say, Lord, these are yours. What do you want to do with them? They're not mine. I don't get to do whatever I want with them. Lord, what do you want me to do with them? It's not about a percentage. It's about what is your spirit telling me to do, Lord? I want to be obedient to your spirit. And you know what? He wants us to be cheerful givers. And when you're obedient to the Lord and you're following the spirit of God, there's a cheerfulness that comes as a result. You're being obedient to the Lord. I've seen God do incredible things. He said in that verse in Malachi, he said, hey, put me to the test. Put me to the test and and see if I won't open up the storehouse, if I won't open up the windows of heaven and bless, and I won't provide for you. Now, he didn't say he's going to give you a new house. He didn't say he was going to give you a new car, like some of these other dudes would tell you. And he didn't say that he was going to so, you know, you're going to be a millionaire. What he said was he would fulfill your need. There would be no need. I've watched God do that in my life. Many of you have as well. You've watched God as you've just been given faithfully and and not out of what you can afford, but out of your obedience to the Lord. And you say, Lord, here. And he's met your needs. And he's blessed you as a result of your being faithful. Listen, to give is an act of worship. It's an issue of lordship. And the reality is to not give is robbing God. It's what the word says. Now, Here's something else that I think we need to notice in the first few verses of Joshua chapter 7. Is I believe that there is some kind of a spiritual pride going on in the camp of Israel. Notice that it says they're breaking faith. Some of that could include the pride that existed. You notice as we go on from verse 1 there that Joshua sent out some spies from Ai. Now these spies came back and they said, oh man, this is a piece of cake. We got this thing no problem, Joshua. I mean, these people are weak. Don't make the whole, whole camp go up. Just send two or 3,000 men up, and, and we'll handle it. Oh, really? Yeah, didn't you see the victory we just came from in Jericho? You didn't do anything. You didn't do any of that. God did it all. And yet now we're making plans, and we're going to do it our way. It reminds me of a scripture, the book of Galatians, verse three, where Paul, chapter 3, where Paul said, Having begun in the Spirit, will you be made perfect in the flesh? You start making your own plans? The Lord hadn't directed them. And when the Lord does direct them how they are to attack Ai in chapter 8, He says, send everybody. God wants the A team. Like, He doesn't send a B team to go do some work. Like, hey, we're strong enough. We can handle this on our own. No. That's pride. And when you experience successes in the Lord, the pride is lurking right around the corner and there is, that, there is that the flesh wants to take the glory. And the Lord says He won't show, share His glory with anyone. We would do well to take the advice of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 where he said, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Consider who you are and remember who you are every step of the way, church. Every step of the way whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley low, remember who is your God and what He has done in your life. And you won't be doing this. You'll be doing this because 
you recognize that it's all a result of him. He knows what he's doing. So we can trust him with that. If you've never memorized this verse, you might want to memorize it or write this reference down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's by the grace of God that you are what you are. If you're a great business person, a great grocery store clerk, a great marketer, a great administrative assistant, a great painter, a great homemaker, whatever you might find yourself being successful with, understand that it's all a result of grace. It's all God's unmerited favor given to you. He's equipped you. He's blessed you. And it's by His grace that you and I get to do what we get to do. Guard yourself against pride. The children of Israel were perhaps being a little too haughty here, and the Lord um, is faithful to humble us, isn't He? He's faithful to humble. Look at verse 6. Here we find God, uh, Joshua's response to all of this. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? What that, would that you have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua and all of Israel are now experiencing the cry of battle. It's evident in the fact that they tore their clothes and they threw the dust on their head. That was an, a sign of mourning. They're grieving. They are in mourning over everything that's gone on. They've lost 36 men. They, now they, they, they've lost the favor of God. Now what? God, what, what are you doing here? Their faith, it says, turn to fear. Their faith turned to fear in an instant, in one battle. Oh my gosh, we're dead meat. And I hope that's what happens when you get out there on your own and you recognize that you're on your own and the Lord's not with you on your journey that you've taken on your own. Oh my goodness, let me get back to that place where I'm trusting the Lord and I'm following His direction. We have to be careful that when we are in those states of mourning that we don't begin to murmur. It's what happens here. There's a murmuring. God, how could you let this happen? You don't care about me. Oh, I would have been better off if you would have just left me over there. Now you've brought me over here. Now look at my, my marriage is a wreck. My finances are depleted. I have sickness. I have all these things. What are you doing, Lord? Why are you doing this to me? We have to be careful that our mourning doesn't turn into murmuring and we start pointing the finger at the wrong person. We start pointing the finger at God. God, it's your fault. Why are you doing this to me? No. Look at yourself. Look at what's going on in your life. How did you get to where you are? Was it the Lord? And if it was, then walk through it. Whatever you're going through, you just walk through. You, you say, Lord, you called me this, and I am going to see it through, whatever it might be, no matter how difficult it might be. But you have to ask yourself the question, Lord, is it you? Don't start blaming him for what he's not doing in your life. My goodness, 
It's not God who is to blame. And here's the interesting thing is we love when God is faithful with his words when they're beneficial to us, but not when they're to our detriment, right? When he says, if you do this, you will experience this. We're like, great, if it's positive, we're like, Lord, why are you doing this? You know, we start blaming him as if it's his fault. He told the children of Israel exactly what would happen if somebody took from the booty here. It's kind of a funny word, isn't it? Booty. The spoils. So look at God's response here in verse 10. Then, then the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant and that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until um, you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. The tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come by nearby clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites uh, was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, God of Israel, and give praise to Him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I was, saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and, looked, and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel and they laid them before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the valley of Achor which means trouble, the valley of trouble. Now, God told Moses in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, that as they were going to get ready to come into the, children, into the promised land, that, the, the, that they were to do everything that he told them to do. 
And he said this to them. He said in the last part of verse 23, and be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. This is a fulfillment of a promise that God gave Joshua or gave Moses about them going into the promised land. Be for sure your sin will find you out. And that's exactly what happened. Achan's sin was surely found out. The Lord saw it. The Lord is faithful to deal with sin, folks. You might get away with it temporarily, but it will come out, uh, it will come out one day because you know what? God is not slack concerning His promises, not just of salvation, but all His promises. God is not slack concerning His promises, all of them, every single one of them even the ones that are detrimental to us. In this picture of God calling out, you know, clan by clan and family by family and man by man, there's a picture of one day what will happen where where every single person individually will stand before God in judgment. Every single person will give an account for what they've done with the life that God has given them. And you will come man by man and woman by woman, child by child. You will come and you will stand before the Lord one day. And that will not be the time when you will say, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Because the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. There's a time to repent and there's a time to judge. You see, I was thinking as I was reading this passage, I wonder what would have happened if Achan would have repented before he stood in judgment. What would God have done? Would God have said, hey, you repented. Go and sin no more. As Jesus did to the many people that he came in contact with, particularly the prostitute. Everybody's getting ready to stone her. She's, she's totally violated God's law. They have the the judicial right to stone her, to kill her for her sin. And yet, her repentance to Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, your sins are forgiven. As he lifts her up off the ground, your sins are forgiven, probably half clothed and all. Your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. I wonder if Achan had come to the Lord And said, God, I'm sorry that I did this thing. I repent of my sin. Will you forgive me? And yet, there is is certain sin that leads to death. Even for a believer. Even for a believer. We see that clearly in Acts chapter 5 in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Where they come and they present their, they sell their house or whatever, and they're going to bring their proceeds to the Lord, and they say, look, we brought it all to you, and they hadn't. They weren't required to do that, number one. It was so careless what they did. They brought their proceeds to the Lord. They said, oh yeah, here, here it all is. And Peter said to him, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Why have you chosen to do that? 
And they both of them dropped dead right there in God's judgment. Will they go to heaven? If they confess their sins, if they believe in Jesus Christ is the only way, if they had faith in Him and what He'd done on the cross, yeah. But listen, there is sin that leads to death. There is sin that doesn't lead to death. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16-17 through 17 says this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that you should pray for that. Probably not something you want to pray about. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Achan experienced that sin that leads to death. Ananias and Sapphira experienced that sin that leads to death. And you and I obviously have not experienced that sin that leads to death because we're all here right now. But we could. But we could. And guess what? You have a choice in it. You don't have to, but you do have a choice in it. It's just simply a matter of discipline in our lives. And I'm talking to believers. Simply a matter of discipline. Proverbs 5, verses 21 through 23. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the, of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for the lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Listen, you and I are sinners, no doubt. We sin. But listen, there is that unrepentant sin. There is that, that sin that only God knows. I don't know. You don't know. There's that sin that God says, man, that sin leads to death. All sin ultimately leads to death. It, it destroys. God is saying, listen, as a believer, I've given you the Holy Spirit. And what's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? What's the last one? Self-control. God has given us the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, and He's given us the, the fruit of self-control through the Holy Spirit. It's not your self-control. It's the Holy Spirit giving you self-control, giving you the discipline. Through the empowerment of the Spirit, we can discipline ourselves in these areas where we're failing. Will you be sinless? No. But in your sin, there should be a repentance and there should be a continual, Lord, I want to be right with you. I want to confess my sins. Because as we know, the word says, 1 John 1, uh, you know, 1, uh, what is it? 1 John uh, 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there needs to be that continual repentance, you know, in your heart. But God has also given you the power to resist sin. To live against the grain of your flesh. He's given you that power to do that. The question is, are you operating by it? And if you aren't and you are falling, are you repenting? Paul said to the church of Corinth, it's not enough to be sorry. But that's worldly sorrow is just grief in general. I'm sorry I got busted. That's really what it is. 
In Aiken's case, he was sorry he got busted right here, right? If he was repentant, he would have done it before, but he wasn't. He was sorry he got busted. That is a worldly grief. And there are lots of people that come into church and they feel sorry because of the things, maybe the lifestyle they're living or whatever, but it never goes anywhere. They never change. That never leads anywhere. The book of John chapter 3 tells us that the fruit of repentance, there is a fruit of repentance. It's a changed life. We want to bear the fruit of repentance in our lives. It means we're we're constantly changing. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but we're constantly changing. But Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through it. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Paul was telling the Corinthian church here that their repentance was evident in the fact that the fruit that was coming out of it, in the fact that they were, you know, they were eager to clear themselves. You know, they were, they were eager to get rid of their sin. They didn't want to be, they wanted to clear themselves. They were, they were um, you know, indignant towards the sin that was happening in their, in their church where before they weren't. They were back to having the fear of the Lord where they were, were fearing the Lord correctly. They were longing for righteousness. They had a zeal for holiness. All of that is the fruit of repentance. The, that's the life of Christ when he is just, you know, when we, when we start to live like him. How many times did Achan steal before he got busted? How many times did God give him over and over and over and over and over? And this was the last straw. Achan, your decision has been made sure. You won't change. And so God judges him. God told Joshua and the rest of Israel to consecrate themselves. What that means is get, on your, get yourself right with God. Set yourself apart for him. Remember when we were back in chapter uh, 3 or 4, the same idea that, hey, before you go into land, consecrate yourself. Set yourselves apart for my purpose. And now he's saying it again. Hey, you blew it? If you blew it, consecrate yourself and set yourself apart. That is the response to sin in our life after repentance is consecration. Say, Lord, I'm sorry that I blew it. Will you forgive me? I'm turning away. That's what repentance is, turning away from your sin. You're turning to God. You're saying, I don't want that life. I want the life that you have for me. And you're setting yourself apart for him and saying, whatever you want, Lord. I'll do whatever you want. That's what God is calling us to do as we deal with the things that go on in our lives. It's not to act like, our, like we, we have no sin. We do. The Bible says that. Listen, but the reality is, is that what we do with that. Jesus Christ came and he pinned himself to a tree and he died 
and He rose again from the dead for, for our sins to be forgiven, to be cleansed. As a believer, as you stumble along the way, that sin doesn't condemn you because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the reality is it breaks your fellowship with God in the circle of blessing that He has upon your life because you're not being obedient to Him. And so He would tell you this morning, if there's things going on in your life, you know, just to, to lay those things down at the cross, to turn away from those things. Again, is that your power? No, because you are powerless. But He's given you the Spirit, give you the power, and He sets you free so that you can do these things. So that was the, that's what He's calling us as believers every day to do in our life. We blow it to be in a constant mode of repentance. Lord, forgive me for that. And again, if it's legitimate repentance, it, there's a change in your life. Now, here's what I will tell you is, you're not the judge of whether someone's legitimately repentant or not. Did you know that? I'm not sure if everybody knows that, because I think that there are some people that think that they're the judge of whether somebody's legitimately repentant or not, and they're not. So we, could, we just all agree that that's the case, right? Like, if somebody, hey man, I've repented. When I go to my kids, I say, hey, you blew it. What are you doing? Yeah, dad, I did. I'm sorry. And? And what? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm turning away from that. Have you gone before the Lord? Have you asked the Lord to help you in this area? Let's pray. Then we pray with, with the kids. That's the idea. That's what we're called to do. Listen, the standard doesn't change whether you're a believer or not believer. And God is calling you as a believer because judgment starts in the house of the Lord to a higher standard, to live higher. He saved you, he's redeemed you to do that. And now he's saying, hey, Live in that constant state of cleansing, you know, where you're, where you're repentant towards me and where you're consecrating yourself afterwards, saying, Lord, I'm, for, I'm here. Whatever you want me to do, I'm yours. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you just for every single jot and tittle, Lord, because it's all, uh, it's all a... Uh, revealing of who you are. And we thank you, Father, that you take the time to instruct us on such things. There are things that belong to you, Lord. There are things in our lives that we have possession of, but they, they really belong to you. Everything we have does. So we would ask, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful with those things. That we would be faithful to give as you call us to, Lord. We'd be faithful to live as you've called us to live, Lord. And yet we know that when we fail, when we fall, there is forgiveness for us as we come in that mode of repentance where we're turning away from our sin and we're turning to you. So we would ask this morning, Lord, that as you've spoken to our hearts, that you have quickened our spirits, Lord, that you have just convicted our hearts this morning that we would, again, just be faithful with the word that you've given us this morning to, to just come and repent, Lord, and to turn away from our sin and then to consecrate ourselves to you, Lord, whatever you want in our lives. We don't want to fight against you, Lord. We're, you're for us and we want to be for you, Lord. Help us to do that this morning.
We ask, Lord, if there's anyone in this place this morning that has never ever came to that place of saying, hey, I want to repent. There's been plenty of times in my life that I've been sorry and I've confessed that sorrow to you, but I want to turn my whole life over to you. I want to turn away from all of that and actually give it all over to you. And so this morning, if that's you, and God is saying, hey, I, that's you, you need, to, you need to accept me this morning. <clears throat> you need to confess your sins and turn away from them and acknowledge my son that he came and he died and he rose again from the dead. If you would just say a simple prayer with me today with a sincere heart, <clears throat> that you would say, Father, <clears throat> here I stand, Lord. You know me. You know my sin. And I'm turning away from it today, God. I'm committing all my, all my sin to you, and I'm asking you to forgive me, to give me strength to turn from it, Lord, to relieve me of it. I know that's why Jesus came. And it's in Him now that I place my trust in the cross, in His blood, through His death and His resurrection. And I'm asking you to just become Lord of my life. So take me, Lord all that I am. If you pray that prayer with sincerity, the Lord wants you to know that your sins are forgiven. And now He's saying, now go and sin no more. And as we close in this last song, we want to just, again, all of us, if there's stuff going on in our lives that we just do as we're instructed by the Word this morning to just confess our sins because He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we would consecrate ourselves. And so, may that just be the mode today. And if, if you're here this morning, you've been faithful, man, and God wants you to know that He knows and that He's telling you this morning, you just keep on doing what you're doing. You run the race. You're doing the right stuff. Keep going. Don't let up. Run as if to win. Be my servant. Let your light shine like you are. He wants to encourage you to just continue on. Maybe you're discouraged this morning and you're saying, Lord, <laughs> I'm doing that, but man, it's hard. He wants you to know that He knows that. But nevertheless, He says, keep on doing it. Press on towards the goal, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.